Romans chapter 8, and tonight we'll be looking at uh, verses 29 and 30. Lord, speak to us tonight bountifully, wonderfully from your word that we could know you, know your heart, know your mind, know your ways, and walk in them. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Now, remember chapter 8 is beginning to talk about sanctification and beginning to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to change us uh, into conformity and to the image of God. And there is a battle that's going on. Now, we learned at the beginning of this chapter there's no condemnation. God knows about this struggle in advance. But then he also tells us that those who are truly born again will be led by the Spirit. They won't be captured again into a spirit of bondage where it says, oh man, the flesh is greater than me and it's whipping me this week and oh man, I'm losing my salvation. We don't have that bondage again. But at the same time, the tension is still there that says, I need to live for God. I can't just kick back and say, well, whatever happens, happens. No big deal either way. I'm going to heaven. It's a humongous deal. And those who have the Holy Spirit in them know that it's a gigantic deal. And as we learned that if we suffer with Christ, we shall also reign with him. And we will have the same inheritance as Jesus Christ. If you're not willing to endure with Christ, you will not be reigning with Christ. Um, although you'll receive a white robe of righteousness, um, when it comes to eternal rewards, you will be lacking. And we don't want to, uh, as he says there in, in 1 John 2, to abide in him so that we don't shrink away in shame at his appearing. Now, we're hoping for things not that we see right now in this temporal realm, but we're hoping for those things that we don't yet see into that eternal realm. And the most important things happening on earth right now, God's blessings, are the things he's doing inside our lives, changing that character. Remember back in Romans 5, we rejoice that we have peace with God. And not only this, but we also rejoice in trials, tribulations, knowing that they produce in us a character. So we as believers rejoice in two things. We rejoice that we have heaven to come, that we have peace and the certainty that we're right with God right now, but we also rejoice that right now God's doing the work in us. And so it may be painful to the comforts of this world, but we don't care because we've died and now our life is hidden in Christ. We've lost our life in this world that we would gain our life in Christ. We've already prepared ourselves. Jesus said, before you even start following me, you've got to deny yourself, take up a cross and follow me. And so we as Christians already have the mentality to lose our life in this world. We already have the thinking process that we're not trying to gain our life in this world. And so as Paul says, dying is present in me, but life in you. And so where does the real uh, proof in the pudding? It's the fact that we're bearing fruit unto God. How? By showing forth his love, his joy, his peace, his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his self-control unto others. None of us are perfect in that, but all of us should be progressing in that. And so how is the Holy Spirit demonstrated in me? Through the love that I have towards one another. Now, how is this work taking place? It's happening by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, we don't do things as we ought. But the more we do as we ought, the more we grow and the greater rewards we'll have in heaven. And that's why the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses with this intercessions, this crying out, with groans that can't be uh, understood by the mind, but yet the Spirit understands crying out to God, saying, Lord, you know what the desires of my heart really are. As he says in 1 Corinthians 2, the Spirit searches all things, yea, even the deep things of God. Who knows the mind of a man except the Spirit of that person that lives in that man or the Spirit of God knows the deep things of God. So often we're crying out for comfort when really we're not crying out for comfort. We're crying out with a deeper cry, Lord, make me like you. Maybe the immediate response is, take me out of this trial but yet if I know, if I stay in the trial and I'll become more like Jesus, really the real cry of my heart is, God, make me like you no matter what it takes. It isn't turn the heat off. Although my body, although the, diff the uncomfortable situation, the difficulty of the situation is saying, ah, I went out of here now. If we got out of there right then, we would look back going, but I want that character in my life more than I want that comfort. And so God already knows what we need. And so the Holy Spirit is evident in our life, moving us, probing us, directing us into the greater will of God. And last week we learned that all things are working together for our good. To everyone on earth? No. To those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And so we as believers know that God has orchestrated all of heaven and all of earth for you, to change you into his image. Yesterday I went to pick up my daughter from school, a simple 10-minute drive, ran out of gas. Now, I knew I was low, but my light always comes on, but evidently I have a fuse out because the light didn't come on. Light comes on, I still got several miles to go in that little Honda Civic, you know. And there I am on the freeway. And, you know, I've ran out of gas before. But this is the first time that really in my heart, I just, I knew God had a divine appointment. And I just assumed there's something special the Lord has. And uh, I didn't murmur, didn't complain, didn't kick the car like I normally would do. <laughs> just pulled over to the side and praise God for cell phones. <laughs> Called my wife and oh, about an hour and a half finally was on my way again. <laughs> Wasn't mad at my wife either. And uh, me and the kids, we just sat along the road and it was a beautiful day. I don't think I would have discovered how gorgeous of a day it was just sitting out there and helping the kids with the homework and I was listening to a tape for a while, the battery worked and I was reading my Bible and had a, had a glorious time. I don't know why God, maybe he saved me from a wreck. I, I know though that all things are working together for good. One thing I know the Lord really blessed us with and my son said, Dad, donut shop. Right before when I picked up my daughter, we gotta get a donut today and you know, wanting to please my kids of course. Um, <laughs> We stopped and we had a dozen donuts. Beautiful day, dozen donuts. The Bible, 
what can you ask for more? Milk. We didn't have milk. You're right. It was. I might have murmured a little bit about that. <laughs> but we know that God knows every hair in our head. He knows every sparrow that falls to the ground. That God has a reason for everything. This week you're healthy, jogging. Next week you're in the hospital. God knows. This week, finances are great. Own your own house. Next week, you don't have a roof over your head. God knows. God knows everything. And there's not any time that we as his children should ever fear. He knows. And so we have that great joy of knowing that if we love him, and that if we are called according to his purpose, everything God has a reason and a purpose for it. Now that whole concept, called according to his purpose, now he's going to elaborate on that in verse 29 and 30. What's that mean, to be called according to his purpose? First of all, he tells us in verse 29, for whom he foreknew. Now notice here, it doesn't say whom you would understand and, and, and be able to explain all about the foreknowledge of God. <laughs> He's telling us God has an infinite mind and he sees things not as man sees things. Now, we've got to be really careful here because man, wanting to see into this infinite aspect of God, begins to make up things and begins to elaborate where they don't have the information to elaborate. What's, what does it mean that God knows everything? We can't understand it. We can't understand it intellectually. We cannot understand it emotionally. We cannot understand it relationally. We just know that he has that capacity. And in us knowing that he has that capacity, as we're going to see here in a minute, it brings us comfort. But to begin to say, well... God knows everything, and then they start adding to it. Since God knows everybody who is going to believe in him, God went ahead and chose him in advance. Now, we can say that, and that's probably true, but it doesn't say that in the Bible. But people go on to say, well, God already knows those who aren't going to choose him, so he already foreknew them to hell. The Bible doesn't say that. And that is absolutely ludicrous, and I think it's against the knowledge of God to even say that. So therefore, Jesus didn't die on the cross for all the world, but he died for the elect only. Why would he spill his blood for people that he know is going to go to hell? Logical, logic it may be, logical it may be, but it's not in the Bible. When guys start saying this, I just like to blow their minds by saying, okay, God knows the end from the beginning, right? I mean, like we look at a one-foot yardstick... <laughs> That makes sense. One foot yardstick. It's been a long day. A one foot ruler or a three foot yardstick, whichever you prefer. And as you're looking at it, you can see the end from the beginning. Now, if you're a little ant on that thing, you, you wouldn't be able to see it, but you're not an ant. You're a human being that can step back and you can look at that ruler and you see the end from the beginning. So God with time, he sees all of eternity like you look at that ruler. 
And now we have the ability with the computer now, we can just hit a button and we can look at anything we want. Um, you know, I have Bible programs and if I want to look at the word love, I can hit the word love and look at, it'll just print out for me everywhere the word love is in the Bible. And then I can just start clicking on verse after verse after verse. Well, think about God. He, right now, is not only looking at it, but the Bible says he's experiencing all of eternity at once, which is mind-boggling. How would you like to look right now at every rape that's ever happened, every murder that's ever happened, all the incest, all the lying, all the cheating, all, all of this happening at one instant? God can do it. Now, how would you handle that? In the same way, you know every murder that's getting ready to happen within the next hour. Could you emotionally handle that? I'm saying, we cannot presume to say this gives us a stepping stone to climb into the mind of God and understand all that he is. And this is what people who delve into Calvinism do. And it distorts the Christian perspective and it definitely distorts the nature of God. And so it is not a license to start adding everything to what we think God might be thinking. God's ways are higher than his ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, as high as the heavens are above the earth. Look over to Romans chapter 11, if you would. Look at verse 33. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. It's unsearchable. Now, what do we know about this? We know God knows. So he foreknew. God has seen in the future. And God saw you. And he saw you coming to him. He saw you with all the struggles before you came to him. He saw all your struggles after you came to him. God saw it all. Now what we can do sometimes in our finite minds is we can freak out. By saying, oh no, this situation is too overwhelming. Oh, my sins are too great. Oh, this situation, I, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, I'm doomed. And we need to step back and say, no, God knows. I'm freaking out, but God knows. He saw this before time ever began. He understands. I love that story about Jonah. Now, Jonah was a man who had a lot of hate in his heart. He hated the Assyrians, and rightfully so. Those Assyrian people in Nineveh were wicked group of people. They would come up to a country, and they would put a siege on them, and they would say, okay, uh, what do you want? And they, they would say, pluck everybody's right eye out, and we'll let you go. We'll quit the siege, or we won't come and fight against you, or everybody cut off their right hand, or kill all your babies, or what, they would just do brutal and, 
sadistic things. And so the world hated them. But the idea is when the Assyrians were coming, you immediately surrendered. Because if you didn't, then they would do this weird thing to you. So it was a power uh, play on their part just to get people to surrender without having to fight. But they were so wicked now, God was going to destroy them like he had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, calling fire out of heaven, just to wiping them out. And God wanted Jonah to go talk to them. And Jonah got in a boat going the opposite direction. But you remember the story. God caused the winds and the waves to kick up. Jonah was down sleeping in the belly of that ship. And everybody was crying out to their gods because the ship was sinking. And finally Jonah came up and said, I know what this is about. Throw me overboard. Now if you read in Jonah, it says, God had prepared in advance a great fish. Now I wonder about that fish. You know, one day here's this fish having babies and all of a sudden it has this enormous fish. And this fish starts growing and getting bigger and bigger and this poor fish is freaking out going, oh man, <laughs> I'm, I'm gigantic compared to the rest of my family. And you know, he goes to family reunions and is breathing in and out his family. Where's, where's Uncle Ernie? You just sucked him in, you know, spit him back out. Oh man. And they wouldn't let him play all the little fishy games and... And finally, one day, here's this fish, just hungry, wanting some of that good Jewish food. <laughs> and over comes Jonah. God prepared this fish to be big enough to grab this guy and to hold on to him, to let him live there in that stomach's fish and to keep, al keep him alive. Now, God knows. He knows that you were, he knew that Jonah was going to be rebellious, just like he knows you have rebelliousness in you. But God also will prepare advanced storms to cause you to get your life turned upside down and get thrown overboard. And here you are floating down to the middle of the ocean. And there's a way of escape. God's prepared a way of escape. And there he'll suck you in. But again, you have to choose. Jonah there, I mean, one second in that belly's fish, God, whatever you want. But not Jonah, man. Three days, three nights, he just hung in there going, I'd rather them die than me to preach to them. I would rather die than me to preach. I just won't do it. Until finally, that seaweed and the smell, and the, it finally got to him. And he said, okay, God, I'm willing and there the fish vomited him out right on the shores outside of Nineveh. And he went and preached the gospel. God knows. He knows about the storms. He knows about the rebellion. He knows your deepest, darkest secret. He knows the deepest, darkest pit you'll ever be in in your lifetime, as well as he knows the greatest heights. God knows it all. Now, do I understand that? No, I don't. Could I begin to meditate on this and begin to try to figure it all out? No, I can't. It's just beyond me. I just know that he knows, and that's as far as it goes. And God has given me 
enough brain, as he's given all of us enough brain, to understand that. I mean, he could have made our brain a little dumber on earth that we wouldn't even be able to understand that he knows it all. But yet I can say to you, just like you look at a ruler, God looks at eternity, and we understand that. Why? Because in Ecclesiastes, the Bible says God put eternity in all our hearts. And so for God to speak from one end to the other end of eternity is no difficulty. He's watching it all. So for God to be able to say, in 200 years this is going to happen, or 500 years this is going to happen, it's no big deal for him. Now, what do we know about this? We know that he foreknew us, but if he did, it says he also predestined us to become to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. What do we know? We know this. We know that if God foreknew us, that if he saw us in advance, he had a reason for seeing us in advance. And what is that reason that he saw us in advance? That he could go ahead and predestined, give us a destiny ahead of time that we could experience it and walk in it. Let's look at a couple of scriptures here. Turn over, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. There's so many scriptures on this. I don't have time to look at all of them tonight. You could go home and Look at your Strong's Concordance and look up foreknowledge or predestined or elect. And it's a wonderful study. But in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has, notice, past tense, blessed us, past tense, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So from God's heavenly platform looking down, He's already inserted within our lifetime those blessings that he wants to put into our life. Just as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundations of the world. That we should be holy, here it is, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. It was a joyful thing for him to do that to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. Look over at chapter 2, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, predestined beforehand, that we should, doesn't say we will, but should walk in them. So what has God done? To those of you who God foreknew, He saw you, He saw your life, He predestined a plan for your life. He predestined blessings, He predestined that you would be holy and without blame, He predestined circumstances in life to continually direct you to be shaped into His very image. In Romans chapter 4, verse 17, speaking of Abraham, it says, And he calls those things which do not exist as though they did. 
God has already spoken in advance that you one day will be in the exact image of his son, Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God and Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. We have been elected by God according to the foreknowledge just as he saw it. The sanctification process is being taken in control by God, by his Spirit. Turn over, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. It says, who has saved us? Who called us with a holy calling? It's a rhetorical statement. In other words, God has saved us. God has called us the holy calling. It's, it's understood. Not according to our works. Okay, we're not saved by the good works we've done. We're saved by the grace of God and the work of Jesus on the cross. But according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus when? Before time began but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So here's the great joy for us as Christians. Today, if you are truly a born-again believer, as 2 Corinthians 13 says, you've checked yourself to see if you be in Christ. The Bible says you'd know a tree by its fruit, and the fruit of God's Holy Spirit is in your life. You can genuinely say it's been proven, it's been tested. As James says, that the works will make manifest your faith. And the works in your life are indeed that you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And we're seeing the Holy Spirit's evident in your life by the love. Not a perfect love yet, but there's that love, that joy, that peace, that patience, that kindness, that goodness, that gentleness, that self-control. There is that leading of the Holy Spirit leading you into righteousness and to holiness. And you are now being led by the Spirit in these directions. Now, I, I want to be very careful here tonight. Because we need to make it clear that it's those who are called according to His purpose. It's those who truly are called as believers do these promises apply. And I would hate for somebody who's not a true born-again believer, who thinks kindly of Christ, but yet they're not surrendered to Christ, to say, oh, this promise is for me. I think there's going to be many deceived people on that day saying, Lord, Lord, once saved, always saved. Lord, Lord, I know that you know, you said that you foreknew me before the foundations of the world, that I was your elect for all of eternity, and that you said that you would do it. You would predestine me into the image of your Son. And so I'm confident in that. But yet you yourself have never given your life to Christ. You've never, with a whole heart of surrender, said, Jesus Christ, be the Lord of my life. Take the reins of my life. Whatever you say, Lord, that I will do. Wherever you say to go, Lord, I will follow. The Bible says Jesus' sheep will hear his voice and they will follow him. He knows them and they know him. Be gone, you doers of iniquity. I never knew you, Jesus will say. Does Christ know you tonight? 
Do you truly know him? If so, there's a great treasure box of comfort to every believer here tonight. We can know that he in advance has already predestined us to be into the image of his son. Now, what does that mean? That means that God is causing all circumstances of your life to have a divine purpose and is orchestrating all events experienced in your life to have a purpose to change you every single day. God is at work changing your mind, changing your will, changing your heart, changing your focus, changing your words, changing your walk every single day. And if I were to look at your life once and then again five years later, again ten years later, you should be more and more in the image of God. Now, this is a great joy for us because we often, in our own thinking, may think that God will give up on us. But God will never give up on us. He's already saw it in advance. He's already seen in advance that you are predestined into the image of his Son. When will it happen in its total conclusion? When we're in heaven with Christ. But even now, it can come, as James said in James chapter 1, those trials can have its perfect work, that you could be complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. So even on this earth, we can come so near into the image of Jesus Christ that we are, as Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me. Mime me as I mime Christ. Wow. Paul, through sufferings, indeed did come into the very image of Christ. So much so that he said, you could follow my example and you would be following Christ. Not only can it happen, but it did happen through Apostle Paul. Is there anybody here tonight who thinks you can say, follow me as I follow Christ? I, I know I can't. I know I still have areas in my life that I'm just going, Lord, please perfect me and soon. Now, I learned a long time ago, being in the image of Christ, there's no greater joy. So I usually say, God, no matter what it takes, no matter the trials, no matter the hardships, no matter the difficulty, turn that fire up as high as I can stand it and keep it there until that is purged out of my life and I can look and look in the mirror and say, that area of my life is now like Christ. But don't spare me, God. Do whatever it takes. Sorrows for the, for the evening or for the night, but joy comes in the morning. I want that morning experience. The Bible says, I will awaken in his likeness. I want that to happen very soon, to awaken in his likeness. And so we go ahead and in verse 30, they sort of go together, verse 29 and 30. Let's read verse 29 again. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, folks, that status is us in heaven. In Ephesians chapter 2, turn back over there again. Ephesians chapter 2. Looking there at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved, verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Folks, Christ has already seen us in heaven with him. He's already seen you there eating at that marriage supper of the Lamb. He's already seen you seated together with Him in heavenly places. It's already been done in His mind. This is why in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, it says glorified past tense. It's not, and He will glorify you. He already sees it as a done deal. Now that should give us hope. That should give us great joy and confidence as believers to say, when we're ready to give up, God's already seen us there. It's already a done deal. The great confidence that God has that you are going to run the race, that you are going to finish your course, that you are going to fight the fight, that you are going to win that fight, and that he already has laid up for you in advance a crown of life. Now, who is this for? He makes it clear that for us who he has seen, he's already planned it, that we're shaped into his image. How? Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn, it says in the verse 29, among the brethren. Real quickly, the concept of firstborn means preeminent. He's the first one that we're to look at. He's the first one that went before us. So as Jesus Christ walked for 33 years on this earth, exactly the way he talked and walked and acted, we are to be in the same way. And then the Bible says, as he died and rose again, we too will die and raise again. Christ is the firstborn, the preeminent one before us. Interesting, we don't have time to look at it tonight, but make a note there in your Bible or in your notes to Genesis chapter 48, verse 14, and then verse 18 to 20. It's a story about Jacob laying his hands upon the kids, upon Joseph's kids, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Joseph put it so the oldest son, Manasseh, <clears throat> would be on his father's right and Ephraim would be on his left. So the younger would be on his left hand and the older would be on his right hand. And Jacob, when they all bowed their heads, I guess, Jacob crisscrossed his hands. And Joseph opened his eyes, and he looked, and he stopped him in the middle of his prayer, and he said, Father, stop this. Not so. For Manasseh is the firstborn. And Jacob said, Manasseh will also be a great people, but Ephraim will be the greater. And then in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 9, God says, And thus did he not speak it, that Ephraim was his firstborn. Was Ephraim the firstborn? No, Manasseh was the firstborn, but was he the preeminent? So the word firstborn also has the same understanding as preeminent. So over in Philippians, where it says Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead, that does not mean he was the first one from the dead. And that's what the Jehovah Witnesses try to say, that Jesus Christ was God's first creation. He was the first created person he ever created, and he was the first one raised from the dead. And that's not true. Jesus was never created. He's always existed because he's God. But here it makes it clear 
that just as Christ. Let's look at a few verses again on the fact that we're going to be shaped into his image. So let your fingers look quickly um, as we look at this. We saw the one in Ephesians that he prepared good works ahead of us. So we're going to walk in the works that Jesus did. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30, Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. What is he saying? The yoke of an oxen, each yoke was made individually for each oxen. This is weird. Jesus is saying, take my yoke and fit into it. So normally an ox maker would take the dimensions of the oxen, its, its width and where its bones were and you know where exactly the backbones were, and he would cut out an, uh, a yoke that would fit like a glove on that oxen so when he's plowing it doesn't rub him raw and he's able to pull the most amount of weight. But Jesus says, take my yoke and fit into it. How? I'm gentle and lowly of heart. P David, King David says, for your gentleness has made me great. David was gentle as God was gentle and he saw that it made him a great person. You'll find rest for your souls in living that lifestyle of gentleness and lowliness, humbleness. So we're to do the works of Jesus. He's prepared ahead of time that we would do them in Ephesians 2.10. Here now we see that we're to be gentle and lowly as Christ. In John 13 is that great passage where Jesus washed the apostles' feet. And in John 13.15 he says, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. We're to be a servant as Christ. So for you to know where the Holy Spirit's directing you. So if you're a prideful person, get ready for some winds and waves and get ready to get thrown overboard because God's not going to let that pride remain in your heart because you're supposed to be gentle and lowly of heart and that's what the Holy Spirit's directing you. If you're going haphazard about your day as if you can live any old way you want, get ready for some storms. Get ready for some fire to get turned up in your life. Why? Because God has predestined works for you to do that you should walk in them. And if you're not doing those good works that God's predestined ahead of time that you should do, get ready. Because God's not going to let you remain as you are. You're a born-again believer with 10% fruitfulness in your life. No way. It should be 100% fruitfulness in your life. And God's Holy Spirit is directing you in that way. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Verse 18 to 24, it said, Be submissive to those who are in leadership over, to, over you, whether they're gentle or whether they're harsh. Why? Because this is how we got saved. For In verse 21 it says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Listen to this. Christ suffered for us. Why? To leave us an example was one of the reasons he suffered. That we should follow his steps. In verse 22, 1 Peter 2, Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. God's directing you, so you will have no sin in your life, and that you will have no deceit in your mouth. Who, when he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. Some guy flips you off on the freeway, you don't flip him off back. 
Some guy cuts you off, you don't cut him off. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He didn't say, man, I'm going to get you. But he committed himself to him who judges righteously. He just said, Father, into your hands I give all judgment. You take care of it. You judge him as you will. I'm going to show mercy to him. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, whose stripes you were healed. Because of the life he lived, he was able to lead others to salvation. In the same way, Jesus said not one word, but yet the Roman soldier, he didn't witness to him and give him, you know, the Roman road. <laughs> Here's how you get saved. He just saw Jesus and said, he's the son of God. The Bible says you are the same. You are the epistle read by all men. People see you and say, there's a God. They say, man, I need to know that God that you serve. That's what the Holy Spirit is directing you. This is a good one. We all need to look over to this one. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is what? No darkness at all. How much darkness is in God? None. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, well, how much darkness do you mean, Brian? None. <laughs> we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, listen to this, as he is in the light, then we have that fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. God is light. There's no darkness at all. James chapter 1 verse 17 says, Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God is so brilliant in his light, there's no variation. There's no shadow of turning. Sometimes I am seeing things, I think I see it clearly. And then I get binoculars. And then it's like, whoa, what I thought I saw, I wasn't seeing at all. In the same way, God is so perfect in light, you can see it 100% exactly accurate, perfect, right away. There's no shadow, there's no variation. You see it perfectly. That's how perfect His light is. Interesting, in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 to 18, it says, Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion, fellowship, intimacy, partnership, the word means all those things. Intimacy, partnership, communion, fellowship, it's the word koinonia, has light with darkness. What's the answer? Come out from amongst them, be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what's unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Where is the Holy Spirit directing you if you're a born-again believer? He's directing you in all truth. He's directing you there's no sin. There's no deceit in your mouth. There's no reviling. There's no cursing back. He's directing you to be a servant. He's directing you to be lowly. He's directing you to be... Um, humble and gentle. He's directing you to have good works. The Holy Spirit is work directing you, and as we see here, to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. 
people come sometimes and ask me questions. Brian, do you think this is wrong? Is it in the light as Jesus is in the light? The fact that you're asking me, is it wrong? There must be some shadow of turning. There must be some variation of light. Or you wouldn't be asking it. We don't look at Jesus going, hmm, would Jesus maybe do that? We don't say, we just know right away. Oh, despicable to even think Christ would think that or say that or do that. In the same way, God wants us to be walking perfectly in that same exact light as Jesus is in the light. Look on there in 1 John chapter 2. Look at verse 3. Now this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself, listen to this, also to walk just as equals to he walked. Folks, we're to be walking as Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing in our life. Don't have time to turn to all of them, but in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. The word there is to be a mime. Have you ever seen a little boy standing next to his dad, and his dad has his hands in his pockets? And the little boy, you know, doesn't have any pockets, but he's just sort of putting his hands up on his pants like he has pockets. I know when I was a little boy, I used to sit in the back of the church, and my dad was an usher in the church, and and I would stand back, I'd be in the back with an usher with my dad, you know, and, and uh, when they prayed, all the ushers swayed back and forth. And, and so one Sunday, I was there, and I was swaying, and my dad looked over, and he, what are you doing? I said, I'm swaying, Dad. He goes, I don't sway, what are you talking about? And he looked down the row, and sure enough, all the ushers were doing this, you know, I, all standing and swaying. That's not in the Bible, but I was doing it. So be an imitator. How? Like a dear child. And there he says, walk in love. How? As Christ has loved us and given himself for us, an offering, a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. That we would have that same love to give our life as a sacrifice under the work and the service of God, just as Jesus had done. And there's so many more scriptures I'd like to look at. But let's look at one more. Matthew chapter 5. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 to 48. Matthew chapter 5. It says in verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and, pros- and persecute you, that you may be what? Sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is a command 
But now in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it's also a promise. God is saying it's going to happen. If you are a born-again believer here today, I don't care if you grade yourself on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 not being much like Christ at all, 10 being very much like Christ. I don't care where you are at on that scale today. One day, we're all going to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. One day, we are going to be in heaven looking at each other, seeing each other in the image of Jesus Christ. Oh, all very unique. Your personality in perfect contact. You're exactly as God had made you, knitted you, but a brand new body and no more sinfulness with us anymore. What a glorious day that's going to be. And so parents, when you get frustrated with your kids, just look at them and say, one day you're going to be in the image of Christ. Until then, bend over. <laughs> so those whom he's predestined, these he's called. I have much to talk about in this calling of God. But I do want to make it clear here before we go tonight that it's no accident that you became a Christian. It's a preordained plan by God. Now, for us to say, wow, I've been predestined, I can now just live haphazardly, I say to you, no. Remember in 2 Peter chapter 1, it says in verse 11, brothers, make your calling and your election sure. How? By adding diligence to your faith. To faith, virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, a brotherly kindness. To a brotherly kindness that a God they love. And if these things are yours and abounding. And so I would say to every one of us, yes, Christ is going to finish that good work that he began. But we have to stay on board. Remember there in Acts 27, where God spoke to Paul and he said, all those who are with you will be saved. The ship is going to crash, but everybody's going to be saved. But then when two guys started to get off in the lifeboat, Paul ran over and said, cut this boat loose. Don't let anybody get on it. For if you don't stay on this boat, the promise isn't good. I don't guarantee you that their lives will be saved. Well, hold it. I thought God predestined everybody's life to remain alive. He did. But you've got to stay on the boat. And I would say to any of you today who are sinning, it says in Hebrews chapter 2 and also chapter 3 and also chapter 10 and also chapter 12, it says, be careful, lest the deceitfulness of sin harden your heart. Be careful. And you die in the wilderness as they also did. For many are called, it says in Matthew, but for you are chosen. 
God is calling you tonight unto salvation by name. He knows you intimately. He knows you well. But also make note that those whom Christ died for and bought also walked away from him. Demas forsook the Lord, going back to the world. We also have many other testimonies. For instance, over in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, it says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there are false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even, listen this, denying the Lord who bought them and will bring on themselves swift destruction. Here it says God bought them, but yet then they denied the one who had bought them. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you, listen to this, from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. I'm dumbfounded that you're turning away from the one who called you in his grace to a different gospel. God has called you, but you have to say, I do. He's proposing to you today, and you have to say, yes, Lord, be my husband. Yes, be the shepherd. I'll be your sheep. And then you have to continue to follow him. These promises are wonderful promises. They're great promises. But stay on the boat. Now, we know that there can be option A and option B. Because if you read in 1 Samuel chapter 23, David had just delivered the city of Kilea from the hand of the enemy. And he was there in the city and Saul heard about him. And David heard that Saul heard about him. And he said, bring the ephod here. And he, David put on the priestly garment and he inquired of the Lord. And he said, God, if I stay here, will Saul come here after me? Yes. God, if I stay here and Saul comes after me, will he be successful and kill me here in this city? Yes. David got up and left. Saul never came to that city, and David never died in that city. But God said, yes, he will come, and yes, you will die here. That is one possible destiny for you, David. That is a possible happening. But David made a choice to leave there, and therefore he lived. And I'm saying to you, God's foreknew you, God predestined you, but he did not tie your hands up, put a gag over your mouth, and say you have no more free choice. I've kidnapped you, and now you're going to be my captive. No, you're free. You still have a perfectly free choice. Now, you're saying, but Brian, I've chosen the Lord, and I want the Lord, but I'm so weak. This verse is for you tonight. Hang in there. I don't care how weak you are. But Brian, I've been sinning this week. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Where your sin abounds, his grace abounds more. But Brian, I look back over my last five years, I don't think that I look much more like Christ. It's okay. Don't worry about it. 
we go through those times in our life. You can take my pictures between 25 and 30, and I don't look different either. But 31, uh oh. <laughs> you can tell a big difference between 25 and 31. Between 25 and 30, not much of a difference. So you may go through a time in your life where you don't look a whole lot different. But let me tell you, you are growing. Why? Because if the Holy Spirit is in you, He is leading you unto sanctification. I guarantee it. He who's predestined you has called you. He who's called you has justified you just as if you have not sinned. Every sin is scattered. All your sins were put upon Christ before you ever were born. And now your sins are scattered as far as the east is to the west, never to be remembered again. And what do we know? You will be glorified. You can go to bed tonight knowing for certain that you will be in heaven with the Lord, shaped into the very image of Jesus Christ. As Jesus Christ lived and died, so you also. Now, here's the challenge for us. That we don't grieve the Holy Spirit. That we don't quench the Holy Spirit. That we don't hinder the Holy Spirit in His work of sanctification. But that we understand, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, we know what the will of God is. What? Our sanctification. We know that God is at work sanctifying us. Therefore, we need to know our bodies. Let's look there. I didn't want to, I've gone really late tonight. Sorry, guys. 1 Thessalonians, turn over there to chapter 4 real quick. And then we will end on our fourth and final fourth verse here. The real conclusion of tonight. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Notice there in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you, listen to verse 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel, referring to your body, in sanctification and honor. You guys need to know how to beat your body into subjection. You need to know how to get your vessel under control, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of or defraud his brother in this matter. Oh, you know, you're going to be shaped in the image of God anyway. It doesn't matter how you live. No. We're not to defraud each other with such words using predestination and election and the foreknowledge of God to live a haphazardly sloppy Christian life. No. Don't defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is avenger of all such for he forewarned you and testified for God did not call us, listen, God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he rejects this, does not reject man, but God, who has given us the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Now, what's interesting, it's emphatic in the Greek. May God by himself, without any help from you, sanctify you completely in spirit, soul, and, there it is, body, to preserve you blameless, perfect, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will also do it. You see, it's not us doing it, folks. It's God doing it. But he cannot complete it without your will. Just like you said, I do. Lord, come into my life. Be the Lord of my life. Every day now, we need to say, I do, Lord, to walk in holiness, 
to be a servant as you are a servant, to be lowly and humble of heart, to be the way you are, to walk as you walk, Jesus. That's what your Holy Spirit's at work today. You predestined works that I should walk in them. I understand that. I'm acknowledging that and I say, Lord, by your grace, by your strength, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's going to happen. Memory verse this week. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. He has perfected forever those who he's now sanctifying. He has done it. He's already seen it. You're in heaven. He saw you in the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We don't see it yet, but it's on its way. Take courage. Lord, thank you for your word. Be glorified in your people. Be glorified in this wonderful scripture of yours as it's hidden in our hearts, hidden in our minds. Lord, let us have that of a joyful heart to stay on that narrow road that leads to life and not to sloppy over and taken advantage of and end up stumbling over into that wide road that leads to destruction. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be rebellious, that you got to throw us overboard and be sucked up by a great fish. But Lord, you know us, and we thank you that you prepared beforehand those rebellious times. But Lord, we ask now that we wouldn't challenge that, we wouldn't test that, to say, well, let's see if the Lord can keep me even if I do start being rebellious. Lord, help us not to take on and be defrauded with such empty talk and not, not let us defraud one another with such empty talk. We know when you called us, you called us not in uncleanness but in holiness. And we come, Lord, have your perfect will in our life, whatever it takes, whatever the cost, whatever the difficulty, whatever the hardship. Lord, we want to rejoice in those trials and let those trials have their perfect work where we're complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. I don't want to live one day or one week or one year in your image on this earth. Lord, I'd love to live 50 years in your image on this earth. Please, Lord, direct us in that path quickly, whatever it takes, Lord. Let us awaken in your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Bye-bye.